0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast.
1: So it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, Doug told me to say, and this week we're very happy to have a special guest called Sid Smith. Sid is up near Newcastle in the north of England, he's got one of them funny accents, and he's just written a second edition of a huge book about King Crimson. Sid, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Hello, hello Doug, and hello Kirk. King Crimson is one of
1: those bands that I would say is definitely foundational in my music listening history. It it was one of those bands, when I discovered them, it made me realize, wow, they can do things like that, and they can get it on the radio. King Crimson had an interesting history, and I went to the Wikipedia page about King Crimson this morning to remind myself of a number of things. First, I like the fact that it starts with, this article is about the band, for the character in the Stephen King novel, see Crimson King. One must distinguish the two. The first question I wanted to ask is how many King Crimsons have there been? On Wikipedia they list eight different formations and it seems like King Crimson, I mean let's face it, it's Robert Fripp and whoever he's working with at the time, but it's probably one of the bands that's morphed the most in personnel from this period.
2: Yeah, I I I mean I'm not sure how many um uh iterations of King Crimson there 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 have been. Uh, because it depends on on whether or not you count transitional lineups or whether or not you count um, guest lineups. So, for example, uh, there was a version of King Crimson that appeared on uh, a a music show on the BBC in 1970 called Top of the Pops. And on that uh, show, there was uh, lip syncing, uh it must be said. Uh there was Greg Lake, Robert Fripp, Michael Giles, uh on drums, and Peter Giles on bass and Keith Tippett. So the composer. Uh, that that could be, yeah. That, the classical that composer. Be, uh no, Keith Tippett, the the jazz pianist. Ah, okay. Um British jazz pianist. Um and it could be Michael Tippett on keyboard. Michael now, Tippett. That, that, that would have been be, interesting. That yes. get, you know, yeah. yeah, that would be that would be something. That would be. Um, but uh, so so there are all sorts of um, as you run down the family tree, there are all these tiny little branches, and it is it is uh, if you want to start a fight between two King Crimson fans, you can uh, argue endlessly about which version of King Crimson is an authentic version of King Crimson. Uh, but I guess for uh, history's sake uh, and for avoidance of arguments uh, I I kind of run it down as as, as, you know kind of principal LPs Uh, and they they would be from the debut uh, leapfrogging over that to uh, Islands um, and then Larkstones and Aspic in 1973, Islands was in 1971 and then after that, you leap forward to discipline in
1: 1982.
2: 81, American, uh, sorry, 80, 81, when the yep. Americans joined uh, Adrian Blue. And when Tony the Met.
0: Americans joined, I like hey, that. Oh, <laughs> I haven't really thought
2: of it that way before. That's right. And believe you me, there's a there's another school of thought among some fans. Um, you know that that's when it all went wrong. Huh. So. Not
1: Check a, the passports of the band members to decide if it's the it, authentic King Crimson.
2: It, it's not a view I share. I should yeah. be add. Um, and then after that, the next iteration of the lineup uh, would be the double trio with Thrak, um, and then the double duo uh, with um, the construction of light in 2000. So there's not that many uh, formal versions of the band, but uh, I think I think we're on to... With the live version now, currently, I think Robert – I haven't got this in front of me, so I'm just doing it off memory – but I think Robert Fripp recently said in a a liner note somewhere to one of the releases that he – I think we're on King Crimson version 9 point something – (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's like software updates. Yeah. yeah,
0: he's got feature upgrades. Feature we, upgrades. We do, and... we
1: do a dot upgrade because we've changed the bass player, and right. yeah,
0: or the bass player changed his strings. That would be the, the <laughs> dot. The minor would be a new instrumentalist.
1: Yes, or an additional drummer.
0: <laughs> yeah, because well, King well,
1: Crimson can't have. Enough. has three drummers on tour. Yeah, um, that's right. I don't know if I've ever seen a band with three drummers before.
2: Yeah, it's it's um, it's quite a sight. Um. Works really well. When Robert, yeah, I've seen some videos, yeah. yeah. When Robert announced that there was going to be a new King Crimson in 2013 and announced that there was going to it was going to have three drummers, albeit one of the drummers would also double on keyboards. Um I think a lot of people, you know, struggled with that idea. Um but then I think what's what's interesting about Crimson is um, I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a conversation when King Crimson uh, formed in 1994 with two drummers, um, and Bill Bruford said to uh, to Robert Fripp, while the other drummer, Pat Maslotto, was in the room. Um, Robert, why do we need? Uh, why do why do the two of us need to play these parts uh, separately? Um, I, I can just do this on my own <laughs> because they were circulating two different time signatures. And kind of a few people, when they said there was going to be three drummers, sort of said the same thing, you know, why do you need three drummers when you could just be playing it with one? But that's kind of missing the point a little bit, because if you see the lineup in concert or in video, the drummers aren't simply playing uh, in unison. Yeah. They're circulating parts. It's a section. It's a percussion section. Well, if you can see my T-shirt,
1: I'll stand up. I almost always have a Grateful Dead T-shirt on when I'm recording the podcast. And that's a band that had two drummers for most of its 35-odd year career, plus you know, the post-Dead Now. There was only a short period where Mickey Hart left the band, basically because he was embarrassed that his father had embezzled $50,000 of the band's money. But that's a story for another band, isn't it? Um, so your book is called "In the Court of King Crimson," and it just came out last week. I want to thank a listener who wrote in and suggested I get in touch with you. I haven't even seen the book yet because it just came out. Six hundred thirty-two pages. There's a lot to say about King Crimson, isn't there?
2: Yeah, I, it it kind of. Um, I, I I did this book first off in I think it was first published in two thousand and one, um, and at that time there wasn't really uh, a lot of information. I mean. The internet was around, but the internet wasn't as as generous with its information as it is now, perhaps. Um, and so I always felt like I wanted to read it, something in a bit more depth about King Crimson. So uh, there wasn't anything to read. There was one book that had previously been done uh, by uh, a musicologist called Eric Tam, which is a very good book. Um, but again, it kind of just didn't give me kind of what i was looking for so uh in 1999 i think it was perhaps uh or thereabouts um i i thought right i'm gonna write one myself and i got in touch with robert um and robert said you're wasting your time you be, <laughs> because nobody's interested and you ah. and, and you won't get a publisher um but,, uh, but, I was lucky enough. Uh, I did get a publisher, um, and people were interested, uh, generously so. And uh, the book did very well um, in terms of sales. Um, much like the music industry, however, <laughs> they were pretty bad at accounting <laughs> to yeah. their authors. so yeah, but but that's a whole different story. So anyway, that was 2001, and that book came out just as King Crimson were about to start a tour in, in uh, 2001. Um, fast forward to 2019, and it's King Crimson's 50th Jubilee. Um, it was suggested to me that in 2019, I really, really, really should have that book updated. Um, I've been writing about King Crimson for many years now, uh, I, I I often supply the uh, extended essays that accompany King Crimson box sets, um, and I kind of thought, well, it's all out there, you know, and the internet, everything's on the internet now. I'm not sure, really, I would have much, you know, I, I don't think there'd be much interest now, given that in a book, given that everything is available online. Um, but uh, anyway, I I was told. Uh, to not take that view And to sit down and get busy uh, Freelance writers are not supposed to be humble By the publisher We're supposed to sell ourselves over and over no, I'm, I'm not very good at that Although some, ah. some people would argue with Toss about that But anyway um, <laughs> I, So I, 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 I updated the book And to give you a quick um, Kind of A few people were saying Well I've already got the first book What's the difference? well apart from apart from the fact that the first book ended in two thousand and one and this book goes up to the eve of a tour in two thousand and nineteen um the main difference is that um you know that there are you know so much more has happened since two thousand and one and and i 've gone into um, the detail of of, of that uh, and and what 's happened since, but not only that i've i 've kind of rewritten and restructured and remixed I suppose would be the, the musical equivalent um,
1: I... well some of the some of the biggest differences are all the releases of the live concerts from the seventies in the box sets with the early albums i 've always felt that King Crimson was a somewhat confidential band that you know musicians knew about but not that many people did but that the fans were very very fervent and in in a similar way to grateful dead fans they want a lot of live concerts and when crimson did that that meant that you had all of this audio content available it's only in the past 10 years right since they started
2: doing that well i think it goes back a little bit further to the creation of dgm live uh king crimson's website um and what Robert uh, and David Singleton, who is who is Robert's business partner and co-manager of King Crimson, what they worked out was that uh, Robert had uh, had kept an archive of concert recordings. Um, some of them, of course, you know, are bootleg uh, recordings, uh, audience recordings, um, but nevertheless, they they were part of this archive. And the idea was that the archive could just sit in a warehouse down near Salisbury, which is what it had done for several years, or bearing in mind that this is at the early stages of kind of um, the online world, uh, or they could create a bespoke label and start putting out some of these, what, what were regarded as significant concerts, so you had the King Crimson Collectors Club created i can't remember the the date of when that started um but uh i i was asked to supply some liner notes for that uh for that series um back whenever it started and- it looks like around 1998 according okay. to wikipedia okay so 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 you had that starting then in terms of offering these um, mail-order-only CDs. But then when DGM Live, the website, w- was created, um, Robert's feeling was, and David Singleton's feeling was, let's digitize everything and let's make everything available for download. Um, and their, their intention was to create a, a library uh, which which housed... Hundreds and hundreds of live recordings Um, and of course just like a library a regular library that you walk into off the street um, You know You can browse and you can have a think about what kind of uh, book you want.
0: I've purchased some of the live concerts from that site and uh, The thing that Kirk and I have in common is that we attended a King Crimson concert in 1982 at the pier in New York City uh, with Adrian Ballou and and that version of, of King Crimson. We did not know each other at the time, um, but we were there. So I was able to find that concert on the website, and it was recorded by somebody in the audience. They must have gotten a hold was it? of it. It wasn't a soundboard there? Yeah, it was not a soundboard. It's definitely okay. re- an audience recording.
2: Yeah. But,
0: uh, you know, it's all there. It's, you know, it's all there.
2: I'm sure there are a few people who have done exactly that. Um, And I think like the Grateful Dead, which we were talking about earlier on, uh, King Crimson is a band that, um, you know, kind of inspires real passion uh, amongst its um, hardcore fans um, who want to uh, be able to access, you know, whatever's there. And so the idea of having all this uh, material available is to give people the choice. Um, and it's like when DGM or rather Panegyric do the big box sets that we mentioned earlier. Um, they do these uh, large multi-disc box sets, uh, which allow you to immerse yourself in in a particular period of Crimson history. Um, but if, if that's not if that's too much, <laughs> you know that phrase when is too much too much. And if that's too much, then we can also do a two-disc version which might give you an edited highlight or, or give you a, and also when when studio arms are remixed into 5.1, it's been very important from day one that the 5.1 mix, which is if you like the exclusive part, of that purchase, um, especially if you're buying an album that's already been reissued on, on other occasions, it's very important that the 5.1 mix is available in the cheapest option. Yeah. Um, so that, unlike some box sets, mentioning no names, if you want to access the 5.1 mix or some of the exclusive material, then the only way you can do that is is to buy the, the big, big, big box set
1: with crimson, yeah, whereas with crimson the 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 exclusive stuff is all those live concerts
2: yeah well it, it it's it's and and i would say the the surround sound mixes that crimson have pioneered uh, over the years uh, of of studio material um often you'll hear fans say i don't want the 37 concerts i just yeah. want the 5.1 mix and the yeah. great thing is if you don't want the 30 odd discs of of live material and if you just want the 5.1 mix and the new stereo mix there it is in a two disc format and it'll set you back i don't know 15 pounds or something you know yeah not not a huge amount of money we've just done the uh, i've just written liner notes for the 50th anniversary edition of in the court of the crimson king uh box set that's a three disc box set with a blu-ray um and i think that's going to set you back uh with brand new mixers and and material that's not been previously released before i think that'll set you back about 30 pounds um and that's that's a great we
1: we're in a market where If records are too expensive, people aren't buying them anymore. It's worth pointing out that it was only this year that Robert Fripp decided to allow King Crimson Music to be on the streaming services. That's right, yeah. He's one of the last major artists. I don't know if Garth Brooks has ever gone to streaming, because he was famously this big country artist who never had. But it was a big deal when King Crimson went to streaming. Now, obviously, it's the studio albums, plus a couple of compilations, a couple of live albums. It's none of these big box sets. But... I guess it's it's a it's a realization that you just couldn't ignore it anymore,
2: right? Uh, you'd, I guess you'd have to ask David Singleton and Robert Fripp that question, but uh, the 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 judgment I think from DGM uh, was that uh, this is uh, uh, this can't be ignored, and um, I think what's interest what's been interesting about that is is the change in the demographic. Uh, the data from Spotify and the other streaming platforms appears to suggest um, that a much younger audience are actually picking up on on King Crimson. Um, I'm not sure that the marketing strategy there is to um, reel people in from streaming onto physical product. I, I don't think that's the marketing strategy.
1: No, I don't think it is. But what could happen is that they'll go to concerts. You know, if you look at the Grateful Dead's business model, they allowed people to tape and trade shows because that would get them interested enough to pay for concert tickets because the Dead never sold a lot of records. It could be the same idea as long as King Crimson can still tour because there's a limited amount of time, you know, given the age of Robert Fripp. Um, I mean, okay, Dylan's 76, 77. He's still doing it. How old is Fripp, by the way? Do we know?
2: 74, is he? 75?
1: According to Wikipedia, he's 73. So he's got a few more years. But, you know.
2: If, if we can put that in, in context, I mean, last week I, I was interviewing, I went to see Soft Machine uh, in concert. And I was interviewing Roy Babington, their bass player, for a, a piece that I've just written for um, Prog Magazine. And uh, Roy Babington is 79 and he's 80 this year sitting next to roy babington is uh john marshall um and he's 76 or something like that or maybe he's 78 i can't remember now and next to him is the guitarist john etheridge uh and he's 71. <laughs> so and and playing wise their, their their chops are great
1: yeah but the the time comes where it's just too difficult um, You know,
2: by hip the
1: replacement. Well, I don't think Robert Fripp has to worry about a hip replacement because he sits down all the time. <laughs> but Mick Jagger and people like that. Let's talk briefly about the music, because the music's what's important. And and I remember the first time I heard In the Court of the Crimson King, it was like someone kicked me in my cerebellum or something. And what I considered at the time, and and if you look at the first six albums, is the raucous nature of 21st century schizoid man, and then the mellow songs that come afterwards. It's just, there was this contrast and again through all six albums which to me opened me up to a whole lot of possibilities you know you're used to a band the beatles they all sounded alike for all you know on an album all the songs sounded alike the rolling stones they're all blues songs and then you hear king crimson it's like six different bands playing six different types of music
2: yeah i i think that's always been a feature of of crimson Um my first exposure like a lot of people would be probably through that first album in the court of the crimson king but but for me it was what was interesting was the first time that i saw them in concert which was in the winter of 1972 and this was a new version of the band uh, which had yet to record anything um for uh, the, the lark's tongues and aspic uh lineup um and I saw them in the winter of '72, and up until that point, uh, my concert experience had included um, Led Zeppelin, Mountain, Deep Purple, Rory Gallagher, Uriah Heep. Um, it's definitely a trend, there. you know, <laughs> kind of essentially blues-based stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And I loved it. I mean, I loved all that stuff. You know, Mountain, uh, all of that. I, I, it was that's where I was. You know, um, bit of Hawkwind, um, I, whoever else. And um, and King Crimson, I can safely say, um, when I went to see them in '72, bear in mind they played for a couple of hours, and there was nothing um, on record at that point. This was all totally new music. Um, it was uh, extraordinary. I'd never, literally, never heard anything like it. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation. Um, about King Crimson being a kind of a gateway into other things. And that's exactly right. My first introduction to British jazz would come through um, King Crimson's third studio album, uh, Lizard. Um, The fact that they were using those kinds of textures uh, and those players um, kind of opened me up to things weren't so strange anymore, you know. And, and and it gave you a context you could say you could listen to something quite quite wild and out there and you could say oh that sounds a bit like King Crimson right you could you could go to
1: bitch's brew for example and it wouldn't be such a shock
2: and and that connection there is exactly right that that was i'm that was the connection i made it reminded me of um, as a child, in uh, I saw um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the, the Kubrick film. I saw that in 1969. Um, and the soundtrack to that film, uh, Atmospheres, um, and uh, uh, the the other pieces by Liggety. Liggety, um, yeah. I mean, I didn't know who, the, I didn't know. But I bought that soundtrack album, or my mother bought it for me, for a Christmas present that year. And that album... Um, opened up my ears um, to kind of strange, um, non-obvious sounds and textures. And, and 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 much like King Crimson opening up my ears to jazz, for example, um, that album, I'm sure, gave me the kind of the scope to process some, um, you know, kind of... Atonal I- music, I- to, to,
1: to, music to, to, with more chromaticism,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah. M- music without...
1: The same kind of rhythmic structures
2: yeah well we you and I were talking the other day um, online about um, the Morton Felman box set that yeah uh, this podcast. Uh, reviewed and discussed recently.
1: Right. So we had Philip Thomas on last week, and after I contacted you, you listened to it. And what's funny is when I invite a guest, I sort through our guest list to say, here's who's been on the show. So I found all the people for Prog Rock and things like that and send it to you. And then you write back and, oh, Morton Feldman, my favorite release of the year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I I, I bought it a a, a few months ago, and it's just a great box set. Yeah. Um. It, it's 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 on my desk right now. It's never left the desk since yep. I bought it. There's probably more or less every day, I, I will play some of it. I wonder how many people are in
0: the Ven, the central Venn diagram of King Crimson, <laughs> Morton Feldman fans. Is it is it just you two? You think?
2: <laughs> I, I think it's. I think. I think we are legion.
1: Yes we're, we're, we're a silent minority, but I, I think, you know, I have a son who's 29 years old and I tried to turn him into a deadhead and it didn't work. And he's grown up with Coldplay and Madonna, but then he started exploring his own music and he got into EDM and then he's found these like really interesting improvisational artists. He just went to see two Irish punk bands from Dublin Fontaine's DC and Murder Capital, I think they're called. Amazing Stuff reminds me of like Gang of Four's first album. But on his own, and in part because of streaming, he's been discovering these things. So he can enjoy Morton Feldman and Steve Reich, but he's also into punk and improvisation. And you were saying earlier that the streaming services, you're getting more young people. And I think. Those people who are curious will, I mean, imagine if when we were teenagers, we had access to all that music, what we could well, have discovered.
0: Imagine imagine a world without King Crimson on your streaming service. I mean, I think that's what they must have yeah. realized. It's like, we're going to become irrelevant if we're not part of exactly. uh, the ubiquitousness
2: of streaming. I, I, I remember um, going back into the 70s. So the main source of information you had uh, how, how do we listen to, how did we discover music how did we make a musical map that was our world and how you did it was tiny it was incremental it was bit by bit um, it was slow and it was plodding necessarily so because you were limited by income um or at least i was um so if for example i read about stockhausen i saw the name stockhausen name checked in all sorts of interviews an almost weekly basis so how in 1971 do i hear stockhausen so how i hear stockhausen in 1971 and 1972 is i i i find out about a library <laughs> uh, and so on um so it's small whereas now you know
1: yeah a click a, a google search a click of a button and we can hear anything
2: no there's a question to be asked there about um the depth and the the, the detail of 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 how effectively you can acclimatise that knowledge. One of the great—I remember buying in—it would be '73—an LP called "Worlds Within Worlds" by Basil Kirchin, and this was effectively a piece of electronic music, um, of tape manipulated music. And the only reason I bought it was uh, Brian Eno's name is—is he writes a kind of little kind of buy this album. (laughs) It's kind of blurb on the back of it and it was also on the help label which was also a cheap label but it also housed a king crimson album called earthbound ah. so so you tend to, and it also played home to a, a piece of music by uh Fripponino called no Pussyfooting. Right. so i bought the basil Kirchin thing kind of because it was in the same stable um but the point being uh because money was scarce <laughs> you had to really you had to really work at it you know we talk about that a lot
0: we you, your your musical choices are quite limited by what your allowance was that week and you had to weigh well is is this a record i'm going to get a lot of value from and that that means listen to it a lot or is it something that's going to go to the back of the bin and we've all gambled on stuff and like
2: the that. the if to bring it up to the present day is what you do now is you just sort of click play and, and let it run for 15 seconds and say, oh, I don't like that. Exactly. And, and you abandon
1: it. Yeah, it's and as, as you are saying, back in the day, I remember listening to a new record 50 times in a week, perhaps, yeah. until you've memorized it, until you can hum the entire thing right. on your way to work, that kind of. And, and now it's true that you've flipped through things too quickly. It is extraordinary that we have this access, but I, I think we're not We're not having the same musical experience. And we've talked about this, depth versus breadth. It is, But going back to King Crimson, when I got those first six albums, and around that time, I didn't realize that the first King Crimson was over. It was like this compendium of all these styles. And we've talked to a couple people on the show about progressive rock, which Doug and I were both real big fans of. Yes, Genesis, ELP, and all that. I never really considered King Crimson to be prog rock. For me, they were another level away that for me prog rock had to have you know the glitter and the the flashiness and all that and i just never considered crimson to be like that they they were in a separate kind they were on a separate shelf for me musically
2: i think i think that's a, a very common experience uh i've heard that said many times for me and and i know robert fripp has um written Uh, on many occasions and commented on many occasions um, that King Crimson are not not a prog band prog with a capital P and probably in in inverted commas Um, and and I know what he means um, and I don't think they are either but but I think there are some common strands. Uh, I think you, I, I think that album, that first album, was so influential amongst yeah. some of the bands that you've mentioned, like Yes yeah. and Genesis, particularly Yes and Genesis, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I think uh, King Crimson, as uncomfortable as sometimes the comparisons are to put it in the progressive rock genre, I think, I think y- y- reluctantly, it, it, you do have to at least include. In it, retrospect. Rest, but but
1: at the but at the time, me and my friends, we didn't consider it that way. It was a different thing.
2: What, what I found interesting, uh, I write for a magazine called Prog, and it's it, what I find interesting is what gets labelled as Prog these days. So I'll see bands uh, who are featured in the magazine and are um, and online, you see them referred to as a as a Prog band, a progressive band. Um, And yet at the time, (laughs) back in 1970, whenever, um, me and my pals would never have considered them to be uh, progressive rock, uh, if if we even used that term then. Um, I'm thinking of bands like Electric Light Orchestra, who I've got nothing against, but I I find it difficult to envisage. Supertramp. uh, <laughs> uh, can, they they were they were borderline it, at least in new york sort of, well for me super trump fit um you know or a better fit than yeah. say okay. uh, Electric light orchestra, but that, but this is just down personal yeah. to personality.
1: Well, if any of our listeners haven't listened to episode ninety seven, we did interview Jerry Ewing, the editor of Prague Magazine. I just want to finish this by making a statement, and no one can disagree with me. "Starless" is one of the best songs ever written by any rock band.
2: Well, isn't it funny? I I was lucky enough to be on tour with King Crimson in two thousand and fourteen when the band reformed and we were in America for six weeks. And when they played Starless, the effect in the room was extraordinary. Um, and the reason it was extraordinary was for many and complex reasons. But, but quickly, um, this song had not been played live in 44 years. Um, no other version of King Crimson had ever touched the song. And uh the and I, so I think that had a huge impact on, on, on people. But there is something about uh the opening of the song, uh which has this kind of elegiac quality. It it feels like a kind of a a very heavy resi- res
1: a hymn like song.
2: Yeah, and uh and it has a, a feel of 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 things coming to a, a close and end. Uh, which made it the perfect song to close out King Crimson in the 1970s, and it kind of, interestingly enough, uh, worked incredibly well in 2014 as a way of, as a way of saying King Crimson are back, and a, and a, and a, establishing a, a very very precise kind of identity, and reclaiming King Crimson, if you like.
1: Sid Smith, I want to thank you very much for joining us. The book is in the court of King Crimson: An Observation over 50 Years. We'll have links to a couple of we'll, we'll link to Burning Shed because they're selling it. Amazon seems to be out of stock very quickly. And thanks again. This has been wonderful.
2: No, I uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, getting in touch, and thank you for putting me on to this podcast w- of which I had no idea it was out there. Um, I've listened to uh, I listened to the Morton Feldman episode, which I thought was wonderful, um, and uh, I'll I'll be listening to um, several others.
1: We're going to put that blurb on our website.
0: (laughs) It is now time to uh, tell you about our next tracks. That's the music that we'll be listening to at some point or another after this show. Kirk, what do you got?
1: Well, that's not always true, because sometimes it's something oh. we've listened to just before the show, or in this okay. case, it's a movie that I watched last week that I thought was worth mentioning. It's not at all King Crimson related, but, you know, I was doing the 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 Netflix shuffle and the Amazon Prime shuffle looking for something to watch, and a movie came up that I had heard about, had never seen. It was a movie about CBGB. If you don't know CBGB, it was country, bluegrass, and blues, and the front of the... Place actually said CBGBOMFUG. CBGB and Omfug. And Omfug. And other music for uplifting gormandizers. A guy named Hilly Crystal bought this dive bar and he just like stumbled into getting musicians and ended up like having the Ramones and Blondie and Television and Patti Smith and Talking Heads. I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about it that over a few years, this guy was literally the godfather of punk in quotes because I wouldn't call Talking Heads punk. Really. Patty Smith, not really. But this was like the New York equivalent of punk. The movie's interesting, it's it's slow paced, it's more interesting for all the bands that name checks and you know there's musicians pretending to be. And I, I think one of the problems is that nothing against Alan Rickman, but he's often to Alan Rickman when he's in a movie. He's got that kind of Bill Murray-ish persona where he changes his facial expression never, and his voice is pretty monotonous. And and I kind of felt that, I mean, I didn't know Hilly Crystal. I actually, believe it or not, grew up in New York, never went to CBGB. But it's interesting if you're into the period and you want to think and hear about the bands and what happened, but as a movie itself, it's not an extraordinary movie. It's funny because when I was looking, I think it was on Amazon, and right next to it, another it was like, if you've watched this, you might like that. And it was CBGB and the one next to it was 24 hour party people, which we've spoken about in the past. And 24 hour party people was a lively movie. I found it much more interesting. So I'll actually go watch that one this week, which rewatched. It. I've seen it a few times, but if you haven't seen the CBGB movie, it's interesting for, you know, some historical. It's a historical. Um, what do you call it? A costume drama?
0: You know, we were talking earlier about. King Crimson being a, a gateway to other genres. And while King Crimson certainly was that for me, there was another album that w- was also uh, had a similar effect for me. And that's Jeff Beck's Blow by Blow. I've been a Jeff Beck fan always. I have his early albums. And I have had the Jeff Beck group. And I had just gotten the, the Beck, Bogart, and Apogee record. And then this album comes out, this jazz fusion record. Um, it was played on uh, the college stations. You'd heard uh, She's a Woman a Lot in Freeway Jam. And uh, it had a following, and then I think it exploded. And a lot of people uh, attribute it to being like, you know, their their gateway to jazz fusion. But while it was certainly that, it also uh, opened up a lot of genres for me. Uh, I started listening to, you know, to people like Al Miola because of, of this album. Um, I started listening a little more open-mindedly to, to other jazz people like uh, like Herbie Hancock and, and and people like that. So it, it was an, a good introduction. I grew up in a house where we only listened to traditional jazz. We didn't listen to so-called modern jazz. And this was the album that, that broke the ice uh, on modern jazz for me. It's Jeff Beck's Blow by Blow. I'm going to listen to the whole thing all the way through. I haven't done that in a long time. This was episode number 164 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit TheNextTrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell a few friends. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.